All right, when we left off last time, we had entered into the period in which um, Tiberius had rotated off the throne and we had come to, um, to Caligula as well. And now we're uh, hitting the point where Claudius is, is ruling and we're really in the period of the development of the early church as well as the beginning of, uh, heading into the period of the beginning of the missionary work of Paul. Uh, during that time, uh, one of the emperors present was Claudius, uh, and Claudius ruled for 13 years. He was a capable ruler and administrator, and expanded the rights of the people during his uh, during his rule. Uh, he was probably uh, the most how to say it, the most educationally uh, sensitive or of or absorbing of the rulers, uh, and really um, was a pretty, pretty good emperor, uh, the, probably the best emperor that uh, Rome had had after Augustus. There was tension between, we think it was between Jews and Christians at this time, and in A.D. 49, uh, Claudius issued an edict that expelled the, Rome, the, expelled the Jews from Rome uh, in 49, <coughs> Jews meaning Jews and Christians, both, because in the mind of Rome, there was not yet the distinction between Jews and Christians that was in the process of emerging in reality. Uh, it's, it's important to remember that in these early decades, the early church saw itself very much as Jewish. They preached Jesus as the Messiah, as the completion of promise, uh, and they went into the synagogues and they proclaimed this message. And in proclaiming this message, the, the message basically was, if you are a good and faithful Jew who's going to respond in covenant faithfulness to what God has been doing, then you will embrace Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And in light of that message, then, uh, uh, pressure emerged from within the church, uh, from within the synagogues, rather, to... to uh, to exclude those who had a Christian message, and that eventually institutionally creates the completely separate structure and organization that we come to know on reflection as the church. Uh, well, this tension had risen to a significant degree in Rome, and uh, Claudius finally decided enough and sent, uh, sent the Jews and Christians in Rome scattering out into the rest of the empire. And Priscilla and Achilla, who we meet in Acts, are traveling on the road, if you will, in part because of this edict that was issued by Claudius. Um, there's political intrigue still in the house of Caesar. Two things dominate Roman politics. One is political intrigue, and the other is raw military and political power. And uh, Claudius ends up being poisoned by his fourth wife, who wanted her son Nero to rule. And she's eventually successful in removing him as an impediment, and Nero comes to rule. Now, Nero is the ruler who we think is ultimately responsible for the death and martyrdom of Peter and Paul. Uh, Nero is a very sinister ruler who is constantly having to deal with the pressure that's coming from uh, from his mother, who also is trying to exercise a lot of political influence, as her removal of Claudius uh, already indicates. Um, 
Early in his rule, he was pretty reasonable, but as his rule went on, it got more and more erratic. This is the Caesar of Paul's appeals. Interestingly enough, this Caesar, who's certainly among the more, how to say this, notorious of the emperors, is the emperor who is in place when Paul writes Romans 13, where he urges Christians to be submissive to government because they are the servant of God and they hold the sword, etc. Uh, it's important to recognize that that statement is being made not when uh, Augustus or Claudius is ruling and you have a, a kind of uh, moral element and capable rule going on, but rather when a more notorious emperor is in power, namely Nero. Um, Nero's responsible for the first extended persecution of Christians uh, which shows up in our uh, extra-biblical materials in a report that Tacitus makes about the great fire of Rome. This uh, fire swept through much of the city. Much of the city lived in almost tenement kind of housing, very much in squalor. Writers of the period <coughs> describe how difficult it is to be an everyday person in Rome living an everyday life. Well, a fire sweeps through Rome, and Nero ends up blaming the Christians and uh, the first real persecution of Christians by the Roman uh, rule takes place in A.D. 64. And Tacitus notes that Nero blamed this great fire on the Christians and, uh, and tells a little bit about, about what they, he calls the superstition of the Christians. When a Roman didn't like someone's religion, they called it a superstition. Um, the aftermath of this persecution, probably for Paul in a second trip to Rome, led to their martyrdom. <clears throat> the tradition associated with Peter is that he was crucified and that when he was sentenced to be crucified, that he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die the exact same kind of death as his Lord had, uh, had experienced. Uh, and if you go today to uh, the Vatican and you walk through St. Peter's in Rome, at one point you will encounter a painting, a very famous painting, in which Peter is being, uh, being lifted up onto the cross upside down. His head's, his head's on the bottom end of the cross as they're, as they're getting ready to push it up and crucify him. There also is a church in Rome called the Church of St. Paul, which is an interesting church for a whole lot of reasons. But in it is the, is the traditional uh, burial site of Paul, uh, which um, you're allowed to gain access to view. So if you ever get to Rome, uh, St. Peter's certainly, and uh, St. Paul's in particular, are two spots uh, worth uh, visiting not to mention the Sistine Chapel, although I will tell you, when you go to see the Sistine Chapel, you'll go through a catacombs of rooms before you ever get there. This is one of those deals where they make you wait in line for three or four hours. You get into the line, you walk in, and then they take you through 150 rooms that you didn't realize you were interested in seeing, okay, until you get to the Sistine Chapel. Uh, and uh, so it is a very interesting uh, interesting place to see, but the, some of those rooms are actually worth it. Some of the uh, more famous uh, paintings of different aspects of Greco-Roman and actually intertestamental history are, uh, are painted in the various rooms that they take you through. Now, 
after this persecution, uh, Nero, um, Nero's family squabbles, if you will, eventually led uh, into a traumatic form of his rule and led to civil war in which the line coming from Augustus was extinguished. And the trouble is, is that when you lose your family line as a dynasty, then all the other families line up to, say, to see if they can be king. Eventually, the Flavians won out. This is Vespasian. Now, Vespasian's job before he became emperor was that he was leading the Roman troops uh, through the Mediterranean area, including beginning the campaign in Judea to overcome a Jewish revolt that had broken out in 66. But in 68 and 69, he was recalled to Rome, eventually came to power, and his, uh, and his descendant, Titus, actually is the general responsible for the overtaking of Rome in A.D. 70. And you can see that Vespasian ruled for about 10 years, and then Titus had a short, a uh, little over two-year rule. Both were considered very effective rulers. And the Roman Colosseum, which you are very aware of from uh, pictures of Rome and discussions of archaeology, the Colosseum, it's the beginning of its construction took place uh, during this time of rule. Titus had taken Jerusalem in A.D. 74, Vespasian, uh, who went to rule when Nero died, winning out over a series of generals who contended for, uh, for the role of emperor. After Titus came Domitian. Domitian uh, was another one of these rulers who um, really craved power. He called himself Lord and God, even though the Senate opposed this in Rome. Uh, and this led to him being very paranoid. We've already suggested how even though you're a ruler of Rome, you have to watch the political intrigue around you. And Domitian always thought that he, his life was at risk. And so he instituted a reign of terror to try and keep control and keep people at its distance and make sure enemies didn't get too close, that kind of thing. And this included the second period of severe persecution uh, after the period of Nero. Now these periods of persecution are important because they generate, they help to generate writings in the Christian church. Um, the second round of persecution under Domitian is probably responsible for the emergence in part of the book of Revelation and the call to be faithful in the midst of the wicked beast that's in the world, which Rome, of course, uh, helps to represent. In the context of the first set of persecutions, we get the emergence in all likelihood of the first of our Gospels, Mark, in which there's a lot of discussion about how to suffer and walk in the same path that Jesus walked. And we think that the persecution background of the, of the era of Nero is in the background of, of the of creation of that gospel. Okay, now I'm going to take you through a series of pictures to kind of summarize what we've been talking about. The picture in front of you now is the backside of a coin which, uh, which was minted to indicate the fact that the Romans had conquered Judea. And so you see the symbolism here of, uh, 
of the, of the tree and the two figures, one sad, the other uh, dominating figure, picturing Rome's victory over Judea. This is a representation, it's not outstanding, but it's the best they could do, of, uh, of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 that is in the Museum of the Citadel, which is the History of Jerusalem Museum in Jerusalem. And this is how they uh, portray in kind of uh, little figures uh, the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. This is uh, a, a commemorative arch, known as Titus's arch, which commemorates the fall of Judea to Rome. And uh, this is located in Rome. It's, it's in the area of the Forum. It's actually between the Forum and the Colosseum. And this is certainly one of the more famous of the arches that still remains in the Forum, in the forum area. And, it's, and what's significant is it's almost completely intact. On that arch is the following uh, image and uh, you can barely see it, unfortunately, uh, but you will see in this image a menorah being carried out, which depicts Rome's uh, entering into and sacking the temple and the submission of Judea as a result of Titus's campaign. Now, what were the effects of Roman rule? Well, one of the effects was that the large part of this period that we're talking about experienced what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was largely a stable period. It was united politically. There was a legal administrative structure set up. Uh, taxes were collected. There was a provincial structure of rule through prefects and governors. Um, there was freedom, however, for local practice. All the Romans cared about was that there, would be, uh, that there would be a peaceful coexistence with the people over whom they ruled. And as long as the people were peaceable and paying their taxes, the Romans were happy. Um, the smaller imperial provinces were governed by prefects. That's what Pilate was. And they had the responsibility basically to keep the peace, to collect the taxes, to make sure that Caesar's interests were honored in the land in question. And in the case of Judea, the high priest, the high priest was selected with the approval of the prefect. That's important because during the time when Pilate is prefect, every year he is prefect Caiaphas is high priest. So Caiaphas and Pilate apparently have a decent working relationship with one another. He isn't going about the business of replacing the high priest. He is annually reappointing him. The Roman structure in Judea was helped by client kings like the Herodian family. The building of the aqueducts and trade routes, uh, 
the road system, etc., helped to link the empire together and created more trade between the parts of the empire. This opened up the possibility for travel by Christian missionaries to take the gospel to various cities. Judaism had a place, and so often Christianity as viewed as a part of it in Rome, had a place as an acceptable religion for much of the period, by which is meant, it doesn't mean that the religion was necessarily particularly respected, but it was tolerated, it was permitted. The Romans, generally speaking, saw the Jews as kind of a strange religion. They had a strange diet. They kept a strange calendar. They had only one God. You know, a lot about it was different for the Romans. But it was tolerated. And Christianity was seen as being an expression initially of Judaism, as we mentioned. And so it, uh, the toleration existed and, and Christianity coexisted under that umbrella. There is much moral degeneracy in the culture. Even though Augustus, for example, tried very hard to establish a moral kind of tone to the society. There's much religious syncretism. The instinct of a Roman when he meets a new religion is simply to incorporate it. It isn't a matter of choosing between. You want to stay in good relationship with as many of the gods as possible, and so you embrace any or all of them. By the way, that instinct is uh, still with us in many sections of the world. This explains the emphasis on morality, the, cult, the standard of pagan culture, the moral standard of pagan culture, or the lack of a moral standard in pagan culture, helps us to explain the emphasis on morality, the emphasis on exclusive devotion to God in light of all the choices that are out there, and to Christ that we see in the epistles. And in fact, the choice to become a Christian in the first century would produce a kind of double alienation. If you were Jewish, it was seen as being a move away from faithful Judaism by those in Judaism, and you were socially isolated. And if you were a Gentile, it was seen as a cultural move away from the culture because you were moving from many gods to one god. And you are moving from a kind of oftentimes moral indifference, except perhaps among the more elite, um, to caring morally about how you lived. So all of this feeds the story of what we see in the New Testament, particularly in the vice and virtue list that you get in certain portions, or if you think about the descriptions that you get, say, at the end of Romans 1 about the nature of Gentile culture. That complaint, by the way, that Paul makes at the end of Romans 1 is little different than the way a Jewish person would complain about uh, Gentile culture as well and its idolatry and the impact of its idolatry. So that's the history of Rome. 